Welcome to CMAJ Podcasts. I'm John Fletcher, Editor-in-Chief of CMAJ, and with me today is Diane Kelsall, Deputy Editor. We're discussing the December the 9th issue of the journal with uh, its usual mixture of the serious and the silly, this being the holiday edition of the journal. Let's start with the serious. Diane, you've written about solitary confinement in, in jail, I think suggesting that we're being a bit hard on criminals, but surely jail's there for punishment. I mean, the punishment, I think, in terms of being um, in prison is actually being removed from society. Um, the Correctional Investigator of Canada, Howard Sapers, says one of the main goals of imprisonment is actually to help people turn their lives around and putting them in solitary confinement with the health risks involved in that is considered in many circles to be torture. What sort of damages were you pointing out from solitary confinement? Well there are um, damages that can occur very very early within a few days of being put in solitary confinement. When, when a person is put in solitary confinement there's so little human interaction um, and, and stimulus that they actually have difficulty with separating their thoughts from reality which can lead to eventually can lead to psychosis. Depression is very common as is suicide, attempted suicide. In fact about half of all suicides that happen in Canadian federal prisons happen in solitary confinement. And over a year, one quarter of the prison population spends time in solitary confinement. Some more than wow, four a quarter. A quarter. Right. Some more than four months. Um, and the thing with the health effects is that there are these short-term health effects. Some of these will go away if people are released from solitary confinement, put back in the, in the regular prison population. But if you keep somebody in, the longer you keep them in, you can actually start to get permanent health effects personality changes, um, let alone there's physical effects. They have difficulty sleeping, um, they get anorexic, and when you take these people out of, if they've been in solitary confinement long enough with these permanent changes and then attempt to have them reintegrate into society, there are studies mainly from the states that have showed that these um, prisoners are more likely to reoffend and to reoffend early. So solitary confinement does not meet the goals of, of helping somebody reintegrate. What's your suggestion about uh, alternatives to using solitary confinement? What are, you, what are you calling for as a solution in this editorial? What we're calling for is that the prison um, system actually looks at ways when people are put in solitary confinement to be able to get, give them human interaction, to be able to give them stimulus, to make sure that the, um, the prisoner is aware of how long they're going to be in there. It's often that unknown. You don't know whether it's going to be one day, one week, one month, one year. You have no idea. And some of these um, regulations have been put in place, but they haven't necessarily been implemented. Um, so, And this is a call that has gone out from Howard Sapers, a correctional investigator, for a number of years. And um, we just want to add our voice um, to so his. So we're putting our voice behind it. And I, I believe the uh, Canadian Medical Association itself has uh, put a full motion forward at its general council meeting along similar lines. Absolutely. It was passed this summer yeah. that they'll be working with Corrections Canada on this issue. Yeah. So after the editorials, we, uh, we have a, a commentary, just one commentary, this uh, issue in order to make a little bit of space in the rest of the journal. This is a commentary talking about uh, guidelines for uh, resuscitation, uh, cardiopulmonary resuscitation for, for people who've uh, suddenly collapsed. I see the International Liaison Committee on Resuscitation Guidelines are recommending that for bystanders 
uh, cardiopulmonary resuscitation need not involve mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation and can be restricted to just chest compressions. What's the message in, in CMHA, which is after all for uh, mostly our medical readership? The International Liaison Committee on Resuscitation did recommend that you didn't have to include mouth-to-mouth -mouth for, as you said, untrained bystanders. And that was based on some very good research. These authors are calling that into question. They're basically saying that removing out the mouth-to-mouth -mouth may not be doing a, a service for, for people who've undergone cardiac arrest because some cardiac arrests are actually um, a result of a respiratory arrest. And if you do not do a head tilt chin lift technique, you will actually, when people are doing chest compression, some air does move, um, but you'll actually be mo moving dead air. In fact, this is the main recommendation of the commentary, is, is that uh, the head tilt chin lift, in order to provide a patent airway, should be added to simple cardiac compression, and that does allow more ventilation. Um, moving on to our research, uh, we have three pieces of research in this issue of the journal. We have time trends in uh, mental illness in children in, in, and adolescents in Canada showing that uh, by and large symptoms of mental illness are reducing over time, perhaps with the exception of ADHD. Uh, but I just wanted to highlight a, a randomized control trial comparing two forms of pain relief for children who have broken a bone and oral morphine has been compared to uh, oral ibuprofen. I guess the bottom line result is that uh, ibuprofen is as effective as oral morphine in, in treating uh, post-fracture pain in children. And I guess my first reaction to that was, uh, golly, really, I, I, I know if I had severe pain, I'd still want a, a full-strength opiate. I speak from personal experience, having had renal colic. I, had a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory and it did just about nothing, whereas the morphine was, was magic. So a couple of things just to, to notice about that trial um, are that, first of all, about, about a quarter of the children entered into the trial didn't take any pain re relief at all. Most of the fractures were um, in the upper limb and uh, around about half of them did not need any kind of manipulation to, uh, to realign. There, there was no reduction. Uh, took place. So these are fractures on, I guess, the sort of the mild end of the pain spectrum. And in that context, I'm less surprised that uh, ibuprofen was as effective as um, uh, morphine. So a, a guarded message there. Ibuprofen is probably uh, useful for pain relief after a fracture in, in children, um, but that's in those with, uh, with the less severe injuries. This is not a license to uh, withhold um, effective pain relief for severe pain. Yes, absolutely. I think it's when, when you have a patient in the emergency department with a fracture. I think it's what, from this study, I would say it would be reasonable to try ibuprofen initially. But if you don't see that there's an adequate pain relief, then I think it's reasonable to move on to morphine. So good, good to have a, a randomized control trial in the journal. The study you were interested in, Diane, was a cross-sectional study. Uh, but on a very important topic. This has one of been one of the most popular articles that we've had in the journal to date. It's, no kidding. It is. Our altmetrics was 234, which puts this particular study in as number 12 of over 2,600 articles that have been have had an alt, 
alternative metric score added? So it's a hugely important issue, end-of-life discussions. I mean, obviously there's been a lot going on in um, at the policy level, government level in terms of end-of-life. And what this group decided to do was to see what do patients and families really want to know in end-of-life discussions. So they actually got um, a group of patients who... Um, these were older patients who'd come in hospital for acute problems or patients over 55 who had an expected lifespan of around of under six months and they ha they look asked them about 11 key um, areas for end-of-life discussions that had been derived from the literature and, and what th these were sort of in a guideline of sort of best practice of yes. end-of-life care Absolutely, and what they found was that both the family members and the patients had the same five elements that they wanted included in end of life. They wanted to be asked what their preferences were for care. They wanted their values inquired into. They wanted to actually know what was going to happen. They wanted prognosis. They wanted their fears or concerns uh, addressed, and they wanted to be given an opportunity to ask about the goals of care. The thing that surprised me there was they wanted to be asked, but really in this study, most of them weren't, were they? Absolutely. The range of being asked was between about 1.4 to 31.7%. So the majority of patients and their family members, these elements were not included in their discussion. Now, what was interesting in the research is that um, they, when they interviewed the patients and family members, they asked how many of these elements had been in, had been included in discussions with um, the health, their health That's the elements team. of the guideline care. Yes. Yeah. And then they asked how satisfied they were with their care. And again, the more elements that were included in the discussion, the more satisfied. They did also something even more interesting, I thought. They asked the, um, the patients and family members what the goals of care were. And then after the discussion, they immediately went and looked in the charts to see what was recorded. And what they found was the more elements that had been discussed, the more likely that what was in the chart was what the patients and family members wanted. So the bottom line to this is, although it's a difficult discussion to have, families, patients do want to talk about these difficult issues. We're not doing it enough. But if we do talk to them about this, a couple of things will happen. Patients will be more satisfied and we will more likely do it with the patient what they requested at the end of their life. Yeah, so I thought I thought a powerful message from a cross-sectional study, and and uh, as you said, Diane, the thing that really hit me was, uh, whiz doctors can do better. The one thing I just wanted to mention, I, I mentioned at the beginning of our discussion in this, that this was a huge topic right now. We've actually developed an end-of-life collection, so we've gone through the journal and looked at um, pieces of like articles from different sections of the journal whether it's research reviews practice and put them in one collection called the end of life collection and that's on the website which is on the website at the moment it's on the the front page of the website so what what's our review this time Diane the review this time is on a very very interesting issue an important issue it's on deprescribing for older patients deprescribing what on earth is that <laughs> okay Polypharmacy. Are you familiar with polypharmacy? <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, one thing that can happen is as, as patients, particularly patients, get older, um, they may see, they may have a number of different um, chronic conditions. They see 
a number of different um, consultants, and they're put on a lot of different medications. I think um, if, if I think some of us have done what's called the brown bag review, where we ask patients to bring in a bag of their medications, and it's often very surprising to see how many medications are actually taking things that you thought had been stopped years ago, but they were actually continuing to take. And of course, when you take older patients with all these multiple medications, these medications can interact, they can um, have a lot of adverse side effects. So what this um, particular article is doing is, is looking at the issue of how can practically we take away medications that the patient no longer needs. I guess one of the examples, just to bring it alive, alive that, that struck me having looked after patients in uh, elderly care homes, was quite a large number of them were on um, cholinesterase inhibitors, which may well have been a good idea early on in their mental decline, but really once they're in a home and um, uh, not able to do much for themselves, is there much point in carrying on a drug like that? No, there isn't. But again, it's prescribed once. They may be just getting the repeats and it's continued. Another common drug um, for deprescribing are statins, where you have a patient with a, a very short projected lifespan, and yet you're giving a drug with all the potential adverse effects related to it, and yet there's very, very, obviously very little likelihood of benefit. So what this article does is the authors have gone through the literature. Um, the literature is not great in this area. I think we're going to see a lot more good research in the future in this area. But what they've done is to try and give some practical advice. Because I don't know about you, but it is difficult to stop a medication that somebody's been sure. on. Sure. I mean, there's one clever doctor who's put the put person on this track, and, and why should I go in there and stop it? What struck me is the... The number one key point was that the guidelines for de-prescribing um, are exactly the same as the guidelines for prescribing. So if you know how to prescribe a drug, you know how to stop prescribing it as well. And the authors have actually provided a lot of really useful advice. They've looked at um, categories of drugs um, that are that are potentially ripe for de-prescribing. They, they provide a list of all sorts of useful tools that are available on the web to help you make decisions around this. And then, of course, one of the worries is with some of the drugs is what will happen when you stop prescribing them? Will patients get withdrawal or will, will they get a, 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 re, a rebound of the original condition? And they actually provide a table with sort of common drugs and things to watch out for. So it's a very, very practical article. Well, that's what we aim for. Practical articles help doctors make better decisions. In the uh, practice section of the journal, uh, your section of the journal, in fact, Diane. Oh, well, there are a couple of ones. The, the first one is a decisions article, and it's actually looking at imaging and headache. Um, it, the authors go through the red flags for when you should be imaging somebody with a headache. And of course, most of the time you shouldn't. Absolutely. But there are a few situations. They actually provide um, some additional information on a couple of areas. One is um, whether what you should who sh you should screen if there's a family member who's had a cerebral aneurysm. And they provide some guidelines um, related to that. And they also, sort of an interesting category of headache is there's a, a small group of people who get um, severe headache during sex. And that can actually be a harbinger of some serious problems. And they the talk wonderful about... wonderful phrase of benign orgasmic cephalgia. Exactly. described that way. <laughs> exactly. And so what they do is they talk about when to know. What, that, that is the diagnosis. That is and the diagnosis. A, a ruptured aneurysm. Absolutely. The second article is actually on screening with the with the pap test. 
Um, they, again, talk about some of the guidelines related who we should screen and who we should not. But there was sort of one, um, a couple of points in there that I thought were kind of interesting in particular. One was, is that, I don't know about you, John, but I was always trained to do a bimanual exam when I did a pap smear. I could never see the point. Really? No. <laughs> I, I must say, even though there's very little to support doing this, um, you, you, if you're trained to do it, it seems just a little odd to go in there and just do a pap smear and not do the bimanual. But there's very little evidence to show that doing a bimanual, just as a screen, I mean, this is obviously not for a patient with mm. symptoms you're concerned about. Um, there's very little evidence to show that that makes a difference. The other thing is that a lot of women um, avoid getting pap smears because that is the component. The bimanual is the part of the exam that feels invasive and particularly uncomfortable. So what these authors are saying is, you know what, leave that out. You'll probably increase your pap screening rates and, and most patients will, will, be, will be happy that's the about point. that. That's the point. The uh, intervention that has been shown to reduce deaths from cancer is the pap smear screening. Um, not the bimanual pelvic examination. Absolutely. The other thing they just remind us is that, of course, we're going, you know, now um, a lot of girls are getting the HPV vaccine and they just want to remind people that just because people have the vaccine doesn't mean you then stop. Doesn't screening. mean they're immune from cancer. Absolutely. You need to keep uh, doing the pap smear. It's the holiday reading issue of the journal. Was there anything you thought was. Uh, uh, that caught your eye in the holiday reading section, Diane, that uh, you'd like to single out as sort of a, a, amusing or, uh, or caught your imagination? Yeah, there are, there, it is a very, very amusing section. One of the things that particularly caught my eye was is looking at a limitation section. Um, Roger Collier, who's one of our journalists, actually wrote this. Um, and it was related to, you know, sometimes when you look at limitation sections, they're getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And so he goes in and he talks about um, this, lim you know, as many limitations so that, in fact, if you read it, his, you could see that his trial would, would be, would have been well, in useless. In fact, the whole article is limitations, isn't it? Exactly. It's, it's I'm not sure we even get any results. It's no, just limitations. it's just limitations. Another one of the articles that, that particularly made me laugh actually goes along in, in, in a theme. There's been a, a long tradition of physicians experimenting on themselves. Um, oh, you're talking about the ice bucket challenge. Last year they we They actually had, threw a bucket of water over their heads to see what would happen. Oh, if it was only water, it was ice. <laughs> Um, last year, actually, we had we had a physician who um, with celiac disease who decided to drink beer and see whether that would have any effect on his celiac. Wheat beer. Yes, any any effect on his celiac symptoms. Well, this year it was uh, two researchers who decided to participate in the ALS ice bucket challenge, and rather than well, they could have simply written a check, but they decided that they would turn this into uh, a scientific experiment where they actually looked at their respiratory pulse and blood pressure response with with ice being thrown over their heads. Um, so there are some great pictures and so if you are considering having this done you can you can decide um, based on reading this whether you actually want to have that kind of physiological response or whether you will simply just write a check. Bizarrely they actually recommend it as um, an enjoyable experience. I found that a little bit odd. Yeah. So um, there's a new section, um, Salon's Gone and uh, Digestif is in, which is a, a collection of our digital content from uh, elsewhere in the journal, a mixture of um, things that have come in through tweets or blogs and some of our website statistics. It looks nothing like the rest of the journal and I guess that's because 
it is nothing like the rest of the journal. It's uh, from the parts of the journal that aren't in print, um, but are digital only. And so that's the back page, uh, digestif. Uh, rounding off our December the 9th issue of CMHA. I'm John Fletcher and with me has been Diane Kelsall.